worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and judge me all you want, but I would give up all of the Federation secrets for a slice of sweet, sweet pecan pie. I'm joined on this episode by Eric Stilwell. Eric is a product development coordinator for Disney Consumer Products and has worked as a pre-production associate and script coordinator for Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Voyager, and the film Star Trek Insurrection. He also served as vice president of operations for Pillar Squared, the production company created by Michael Pillar and his son Sean, and he served as an associate producer on Pillar's shows The Dead Zone and Wildfire. He's also a writer and co-wrote the story for the Next Gen episode Yesterday's Enterprise and the Voyager episode Prime Factors. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about Prime Factors, the 10th episode of the first season of Star Trek Voyager. The heroes of Star Trek live lives that are dedicated to using their cultural and technological advantages to benefit not only their society, but also the societies of those they come in contact with. The power that they wield comes with restrictions, rules designed to protect less advanced civilizations from Starfleet interference, no matter how well-intentioned. But the Federation isn't the only principled society in the galaxy, and a Starfleet crew can enter uncharted ethical territory when they find themselves up against the same preventative measures that they take with other races. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Eric, let's dive into your dossier. How did you become a Star Trek fan? How did I become a Star Trek fan? Well, my father was in the Air Force, and we were living um, at a base in Idaho when I was in grade school. And my best friend was a huge Star Trek fan, and he was always begging me to like come over and watch Star Trek with him. So one day after school, I I agreed, and we um, we watched an episode. I think it was uh, tomorrow is yesterday. I, I, I always confuse the two time travel. There's a time travel one, and then there's the one with Sargon. Right. Yeah. So it, yeah. It, it, it was the Sargon one, and I was immediately mesmerized and. Uh, became just like instantly became a fan and from that point on i was obsessed i was like 12 i think at the time and the local tv station up in boise had been showing the star trek reruns because it was like 1974 so it was already past the original run of the series yeah. And then one day we came home from school and they were and Perry Mason was on in the time slot that <laughs> Star Trek was supposed to be on, and we were like, "What?" So we started a, a, a letter. We started a petition to get it back on TV, and we got like 300 people to sign a petition, and we sent it off to Boise to the TV station. And a, a couple weeks later, I got a really nice letter back from the station manager with two. Uh, 
publicity spills of, of Shatner and Nimoy from Star Trek and the, the promise that after a couple months of per, Perry Mason reruns, Star Trek would be back. And, and <laughs> it was like, yay, we saved Star Trek now. <laughs> Even though it was already long since canceled. But that was the beginning of my foray into a Star Trek fandom. Was it an inspiration for you uh, to get into work in TV and film? Oh, for sure. I mean, what's interesting, though, is um, my interest in Star Trek, I always tell people, was, was that my my life philosophies and such were inspired by Star Trek. But it, it was when I was 15 years old and Star Wars came out. Okay. And, and the visual effects and storytelling blew my mind. <laughs> right. when I when I suddenly wanted to move to L.A. or move to Hollywood and, you know, work in the business. And when I graduated from college, the opportunity to work on Star Trek happened, and it all fell into place. So in a, in a weird way, Star Wars is what took me to Hollywood, but Star Trek is, was the my initial, uh, you know, the thing that I loved the most. So it was really an amazing opportunity to be able to come to Hollywood and and pursue that opportunity. Sure. Well, it's all about stars anyway, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I work at Disney now, which is the owner of Star Wars, so it's <laughs> all right. come full circle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you started working uh, on the Paramount lot, is that right? That's true. I started off as a tour guide. I, I had applied many, many times to to get a job working at the studio, um, mailroom jobs and sure various things and I had never had any luck and then uh, I heard about an opening for one of the studio pages which are the guys who do the the guys and gals who do the tours and also work on the live audience shows right with and I uh, I found out who the manager of the department was and I actually submitted my resume directly to him and I ended up being hired as a studio page. So I was either helping do tours or working on live audience shows like um, Family Ties and Cheers, those types of shows that were on back in the 80s. Sure. And we would help do audience management on those shows. And less than a month into it, uh, well, I have to go back a few steps before I started working at the studio, I had already interviewed with Bob Justman for a okay, production sure. assistant job, but I didn't <laughs> get that job. But Bob had told me, you know, the 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 best foot in the door opportunities at studios were being in the mailroom or a tour guide because okay. the, the reason because I got this most amazing rejection letter from Bob Justman. If someone could make you feel good for not hiring you, it was Bob. He said <laughs> I was in like the, the top one percent of the candidates that he had interviewed, but they had decided to go with someone who already had experience at the studio, so they wouldn't have to learn from scratch where all the buildings were and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. So then it became my obsession to get a job at the studio where I could um, learn all those things and possibly have an opportunity in the future. So when I started working as a page, um, we were 
told by our manager that because of the high turnover and and opportunities that pages get when they start to meet other people at the studio, we had to give at least a six month commitment okay, <laughs> to, sure. to the position because otherwise the turnover would just be too much. Um, and literally like a month after I started, I um, my boss came to me one night and said, <clears throat> um, there's going to be a screening of that new Star Trek show. And I know you're a big fan. Would you be interested in doing door duty at the screening? It's going to be on the lot here with the cast and crew, and they just need someone to check the names off the list. And then afterwards, you can stay and watch the screening. And I'm like, wow. are you kidding? Of course, I, of course <laughs> I will do this, right? So I, me and another page were doing the screening for Encounter at Farpoint. And um, during during um, the check-in with all the people arriving, Bob Jessman came up and, and was like, Eric, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm, I'm a page now at the, at the studio. And he's like, well, I, I didn't know that. I haven't seen you around. And I'm like, well, I know the Star Trek sets are off limits and closed, and so I haven't wanted to pester anybody. And so he seemed impressed by that. And literally the <laughs> next day, after I finished my shift as uh, doing a tour, I was back in the page office and someone said, oh, by the way, Eric, there was a call from someone named Bob Jessman. <laughs> he wants you to <laughs> call him back. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So I, I called him back and he's like, hey, are you are you on the lot today? And I'm like, sure. He's like, I was wondering if you could come over to my office. And I said, okay. So I walked over to, uh, I think it was Trailer 29 or something where the production office was located. And uh, he says to me, one of the PAs that we hired got promoted already, and I was wondering if you'd be interested in this position. And I was, like, so naive and stupid back then. I'm like, well, you know, I made this six-month commitment, and I feel <laughs> bad. And right. so he yells out to his assistant, Carol Eisner, and he says, Carol, bring in the stack of resumes for the PA job. And she literally like had this box that was like two feet thick of resumes. <laughs> and he was kind of like, if you don't want it, there's plenty of other people who are interested. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and he, I said, when does it start? And he's like, tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Wow. <laughs> so I literally had to like quit my job. And, and fortunately, my supervisor over in the page department was very understanding uh, once he understood that I had previously interviewed for the job and hadn't okay, been sure. looking for the position after I had already become a studio page. So it right. all worked out. And like the next season when they were training the new class of pages on the lot, he would sometimes see me and stop the group and go, so new pages this this is Eric Stillwell. Don't do what he did. <laughs> and I was the example of what not to do if you're right. <laughs> giving a six month commitment. Anyway, we were we stayed friends for years and that's how it all started. That's great. Bob Justman must have been uh really surprised that you weren't uh once you were on the lot beating down his door like I know where all the buildings are now. Come on, give me a chance. 
That's, well, I, I've always felt like that's the thing that turns people off if you're too um, obsessive as a fan. Oh, so sure. I knew that that was the thing not to do, especially right. since all the Star Trek sets are closed sets. You don't want to get caught like sneaking onto the sets. Right. Yeah. And there were issues over the years where there were other producers who were far more um, suspicious of people. So like um, Harv Bennett and I somehow got off on the wrong foot and there was a point during the years when I was working on Next Generation when they were doing like one of the Star Trek films, I think it was Star Trek Five, and uh-huh. someone actually broke on broke into the studio on the weekend and stole some of the costumes and the captain's chair off the bridge of the Enterprise for Star Trek Five. <laughs> and on Monday morning, because I heard about the report over the weekend, it was in the news, but right. on Monday morning I came into the office and Gene Roddenberry's assistant said to me, hey, Eric, um, Harv Bennett's office was calling about you. They were wondering if you still worked here. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Why were they looking for me? But they were also asking about Richard Arnold. So basically they were inquiring about all the people who were fans. Okay, I see. Who happened to work on the lot. And it was so, like, irritating to me (laughs) I immediately went over to David Livingston, who was our uh, production manager, and I'm like, sure. David, our Bennett office is trying to accuse me of stealing their stuff. <laughs> Where am I going to put a captain's chair? <laughs> yeah. And anyway, David's like, don't, just calm down. Don't worry about it. But it, the thing was, at the time, people were always coming up to me, like even members of the crew, like, the prop masters and stuff, and they'd be like, hey, Eric, how much could you get for this phaser at a Star Trek? <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't sell props at Star Trek conventions. <laughs> so there was just a very, um, in the first season of Star Trek Next Generation especially, there was a super, super high sensitivity to um, security sure. of, of the content and the show you know, started off, you know, the first season and the second season were a little bit rocky in terms of not knowing for sure if the show was going to be successful in the long right. run. Yeah. So they were super sensitive, like especially Rick Berman, about how um, things operated around there. And at one point in time, I had been approached by Majel Barrett Roddenberry to help her out with her Lincoln Enterprises fan club newsletter. Oh, sure, yeah. And so I helped edit like one one issue of her her newsletter with an interview with Denise Crosby and uh, Rick found out about that and like had blew a gasket and was like, "What are you doing? You can't be doing this." I'm like, <laughs> But the executive producer's wife asked me to do You can't do this. It's a conflict of interest. I'm like, I just don't understand, but I won't do it anymore if that's what you want. So There was always some crazy stuff going on like that, especially during the first year when I was a production assistant. Yeah. Like there was another, I could tell you all these stories. Do you want to hear them? Yeah, please. (laughs) I mean, there was this 
one time, like, the PAs were always being asked to make photocopies of sensitive documents, and so we were always told, you know, be very careful, like, if you're mm-hmm. making copies of the budget or whatever, not to throw things into the trash that someone might pick out of the garbage. So I was sent off one day to photocopy a budget, and, of course, the machine jammed, and the pages that I had to pull out of the machine were the pages where they list the the salaries of the cast members. Oh, boy. (laughs) And I think, well, I can't throw those in the garbage. So I left them in a pile on my desk so that I could go take them to the shredder later. Well, someone found them on the desk and thought I was making copies of, you know, the cast <laughs> salary. I mean, it was like always something crazy like that, right? Right. <laughs> and the craziest thing of all was when I I had been dating this this girl, and occasionally I would have a Star Trek script at home, and uh, it turns out... Uh, we were at a, a convention in Anaheim where a bunch of the um, production members who were fans were all there. Like, so Richard Arnold was there, Mike Akuda was there, and Denise, before she was married to him, and a bunch of us were at lunch at this convention. And the girl I was dating was there, and apparently she got into a side conversation with Richard Arnold and had mentioned to him something about. Um, something coming up in a, in an episode that hadn't aired yet. Okay. So he assumed that she, that I had given her this information or that she had seen one of the scripts at my apartment or whatever, and right. he told the producers. So then something else happened where uh, a copy of Gene Roddenberry's um, blooper reels had disappeared, and they were trying to figure out who had taken them. And all of this stuff just, like, coincided all at the same time. And so I get called into David Livingston's office, and he's, like, listing off all these things that I've been suspected of being involved in. And I'm just like, I I swear to God, all of these things are just, like, odd coincidences that I literally did not show anyone a script, did not give out, you know, any of the, and I almost got fired, but he said it would be up to Rick Berman. And then Rick left for the day and never heard anything about it, and it just all went away. <laughs> but I was like a nervous wreck for like days on end. And then I, I, I confronted this girl that I was dating about what she had said to Richard Arnold, and she's like, "Oh, this this is this is so stupid because what happened was she was a school bus driver in West LA, and she says to me, David Livingston's son rides my bus to school, <laughs> and one day he came on the bus with all these Star Trek scripts, <laughs> and I asked him if I could borrow one, and that's how I knew about that." And I'm Fire like, your son, David. <laughs> yeah, so it was son. like after that situation, I was like, I can't even go back and tell him about it because I don't <laughs> even want to bring it. I to, it was years later before I ever told David about it because I just didn't want to bring up the subject again. So that was like the first year. It was like 
crazy ass shit like that. And then like I think it was the second season when we there was a writer's strike or a director's strike or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a writer's strike because they yeah. weren't supposed to be writing any scripts, but there was still um, one episode. It was a first season episode called The Neutral Zone. Yeah. And I remember Maurice Hurley coming up to me in the production office, and he says, "Hey, Eric, I need some some Romulan names for the script. Can you can you uh, get some for me?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Am I just supposed to make them up?" And he's like, "No, look them up in a Romulan encyclopedia." <laughs> <laughs> So I was the one who came up with the names of the Romulans in the neutral zone. And from that point on, things sort of got better because I was able to start making little contributions here and there that only I knew about, but it was still kind of fun. Yeah, well, and you definitely held on because you eventually, you know, were working <laughs> with uh, coordinating scripts and such. And this was at the time that, uh, I, I believe this was uh, Michael Piller's idea, but you were accepting uh, spec scripts, right? That's true, yeah. Yeah, I'd have to imagine that a lot of spec scripts probably came across uh, your desk. Yeah, so when Michael came up with that notion, because when Michael came on during the third season, the show was so dressed, desperately like looking for material. Uh-huh. And uh, there there had been another producer that had been hired before Michael Pillar. His name was Michael Wagner. Uh-huh. And he, Michael Wagner was just so overwhelmed by the task that he was thrown into that he literally like didn't last more than a couple weeks and he quit. Okay. Sure. And for, for a couple weeks while they were following up with Michael Piller and working out the negotiations for him to come on staff, it was like me and Rick Berman were kind of like running the script department. So okay, sure. I would, I would go over cause I was the script coordinator by then during the third season and, so Rick would have me come over to his office and I would take notes and go back and make all the changes. And So it was weird for a period of time. I was like the de facto like <laughs> script department showrunner. And then Michael joined the staff and really started to whip things into shape. And one of the things he asked the studio was if he could open the submission process to to writers who were not members of the Writers Guild or, you know, just fans, anyone who wanted to submit an idea. Right. So the studio, of course, didn't really like that idea, and the lawyers are loath to have that kind of a process because of the potential for lawsuits and stuff. So they made us come up with these very strict guidelines, and I worked with Michael, and we put together like a five- or six-page-long document that were the guidelines of everything that that you had to follow in order to submit a, a, a script and then basically you had to sign a waiver saying that you wouldn't sue the studio if anything similar was independently developed right and the difficult thing is people always think that they have the most original idea in the world. Right. But when, when you work on a show, you'll hear the same ideas like over and over or some variation. <laughs> yeah, of right. them, to the point where the staff started keeping this whiteboard in, in <laughs> one of the offices with categories of, you know, 
space ghost. Like how many times? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they would keep track of like how many times they would hear the same pitches over and over and over. <laughs> right. Then meanwhile, we did start getting speculative scripts, and at one point we were getting over five thousand scripts a year. Wow. And of course, they were only twenty-six episodes. Yeah, <laughs> each season, which was twice as many as they do nowadays, but yeah, really. But still, you have to keep in mind that most episodes are written by staff writers, and that's what they get paid to do. So there weren't a lot of openings, but um, there were some standout freelance submissions, uh, and of course, the most famous one of all was Ronald D. Moore, who submitted sure. his spec script of the bonding, which Michael loved, and. Uh, was it the bonding? I know he did the bonding, but I can't remember if that was his first one or second one. I think yeah. it was his first one. And then they invited him back to do a second one and made history, right? Because right. now Ron's like one of the most you know, prolific and successful producer writers in Hollywood. Sure. Get some new blood in there. Well, you know, you yourself uh, wrote Yesterday's Enterprise or co-wrote with uh, Trent Christopher Ganino. Um, it's a great episode. It's, you know, it's the best episode of Star Trek, according to Entertainment Weekly's uh, 20th anniversary poll. We've covered um, Yesterday's Enterprise previously on the show. We've talked about its kind of piecemeal origins, but I am not sure that we got everything right. So I want to talk to you a little bit right now about okay. how the, the episode came about. Can you talk about how you sold the story for Yesterday's Enterprise to the show? Well, first I'll start with Trent, because Trent was a freelance writer who had written a script called Yesterday's Enterprise, which he had submitted. Right. But the the basic storyline of that one was that um, a ship had come through time into the Enterprise D's present time, Mm -hmm. but there was no altered timelines or anything like that. It became more of a... um, morality tale about sending people back um, before there was an opportunity to alter the timeline. And okay. But knowing that they would die in a battle if we send them back, the issue was all about, do we tell them? Do we not tell them? Do we send them back? Do we not send them back? So it was that kind of a morality story. Sure. And the captain of the Enterprise C was a man named Richard Garrett, and okay. he was named after a pizza parlor in, in Trent's hometown of San Jose, California. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so that whole initial script was all Trent's thing. And then I had been working on a separate story idea that was based on <clears throat> the um, Guardian of Forever. Okay, Where sure. I, I had this idea that the Enterprise was escorting a, a uh, Vulcan team to uh, the Guardian planet because they were doing some historical studies on ancient Vulcan. And so Sarek was on board to go greet the archaeologists at the planet. And in the somehow in the, in the process of all this, an accident occurs on the planet's surface, like a phaser went off or something, and and it went through the Guardian, back through time, and killed off Surak, who was the okay, founder of news. Vulcan sure. philosophy. Yeah. So that alters the future by creating a situation where the Vulcans never became peaceful, logical civilization. 
but instead okay, sure. um, joined with their Romulan relatives to become like the most vicious and powerful like empire in the galaxy. Right. And they had wiped out the Klingons and were on the verge of destroying the Federation. And as the story, that was the story that I was working on. Okay. And Trent had become a a tour guide, which is how I met him originally. And he and I were both at an employee screening of Star Trek V. And afterwards, we were just debriefing what a hideously horrible movie that was. <laughs> <laughs> and we ended up at some diner in on sun on the sunset strip until like four in the morning, just talking, talking, talking about Star Trek. And and I knew that his script had been floating around our offices for like months on end, and it kept getting pawned off to someone else. <laughs> one one staff writer would read it and then pass it on to someone else, and it, literally it was there for months on end. And I told Trent about my story, which he also liked, and then it it had some other so after this uh, Star Trek five screening thing, we thought, let's work together and come up with, like, another idea that we can, like, pitch to the producers and based on the story that I was working on. Right. And somewhere along the line, I um, was at, I think maybe both of us were at a convention up in San Jose, and, and Denise Crosby was there. And she had already left the show. And at the convention, I was talking to her, and she said, Hey Eric, you should write a script and bring me back. Sure. And I'm thinking you're dead. How would we bring you back? <laughs> and so Trent and I started talking about it, and we were thinking, well, this time altered storyline would be the perfect opportunity for her to to still be alive in the alternate right. reality. So we started talking about that, and then a couple weeks later, I was in the office and. I saw a memo go around. People have to realize this was like way before emails. Nobody right. had emails. We still had yeah. paper memos that were distributed. <laughs> and I saw this memo saying, I think it was from Rick Berman to Michael Piller, saying that they had been contacted by Denise Crosby's agent, and she had expressed interest in coming back to the show. And did Michael have any thoughts on how they could do that since she was dead? <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, this is our story, right? right so yeah. I literally, like, walked into Michael Piller's office and said, Michael, can I talk to you? And he's like, sure. And so I sat down and literally in an impromptu pitch, I pitched the story to him. And, and Trent knew that I told him that Trent and I had been working on this idea and that Trent was the one who would written that yesterday's Enterprise story. And um, so Michael says, Michael's favorite thing was always, no gimmick from the original series. You can't do Uh-oh. Guardian of Forever Planet <laughs> right. or Sarek or anything like that because the series was still young and they wanted it to stand on its own feet. He's like, right. but I do like the altered timeline story and, and bringing Tasha back through that. He's like, why don't you and Trent combine his story and your story together and 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 uh, basically come back and 
and present it to me. So we basically at that point got hired to go write the, the revised story of yesterday's Enterprise. We sure. combined his initial framework with an alternate reality storyline, and that's right. how it all came about. Okay. Now you're acting as a script coordinator at this point, right? So once yeah. it gets turned over to uh, to the staff writers, are you seeing your own work then come in across your desk and seeing what they're doing? Yeah. Well, Trent and I had an opportunity to do two, do two drafts of the story, sure. and we're struggling with this notion of how does the Enterprise crew know that the timeline has been altered. If they're not okay. to, be, to that, how do we how do we make them realize this? And we were trying to come up with all sorts of weird things with probes that had been sent through the anomaly ahead of time, and okay, yeah, data having some weird like you know ghost memory or something. <laughs> and finally, Michael Piller came up with the idea of it being Guinan, who was an alien who could like perceived through different sure. time frames or something. Right. But at that point they decided um, to turn over the, the next draft to, to Ron Moore to work on. Right. So Ron came up with the third draft of the story. And then they wanted to shoot the episode um, like in January or February but Denise Crosby and Whoopi Goldberg weren't available the same weeks. So okay. suddenly it was, being, it was being pushed up to early December, like two months earlier than they expected. Okay. And that was when Michael basically said to the entire writing staff, except for Melissa Snodgrass, that <laughs> everyone had to take home an act over Thanksgiving weekend <laughs> and bring it in on Monday and put it all together. And, of course, everybody was like crap, this is going to ruin our weekend, blah, blah. Everybody <laughs> right. was, like, really upset. And there's a pretty much a, a accurate thing that happens in Hollywood when you see a whole bunch of writers' names on a on a script. It looks, it, it usually turns out to be a piece of shit. Yeah, it's, it's bad <laughs> and news, it means yeah. And it's been rewritten and rewritten and rewritten by different people. So, so the writers weren't very optimistic about how it was going to turn out, but I thought the script looked great, and I was very enthusiastic. And they were all, like, "Yeah, we'll, we'll see," you know. <laughs> but you know, it turned out pretty good. Yeah, it does, uh, and it's amazing. When I first read that, that it was, you know. Uh... I received and bear Ronald D. Moore, Hans Bamler, and uh, Richard Manning that all wrote it. You know, in and Michael Miller wrote part of it too. But That's didn't right. Get credit yep. because the yeah. guild wouldn't allow that many names on. The- <laughs> yeah, four <laughs> names total. Yeah, and but it it works to. I mean, it, the whole thing fits together really well. It's very. Uh, it's vignettes, you know, you're kind of following scene to scene to scene through these different uh, sort of plot lines, but it's nothing that's too uh, outre for what you'd expect from a genre TV episode. Like, it all runs together really well. And then, of course, Rick Berman made a commitment to just go all out with this episode in terms of the budget, because there were things that we never imagined that they would do, like practically redesigning the bridge and I mean, some of the things were kind of cheesy, like the reusing the old feature film costumes and stuff like that. But yeah, but um, but they really went all out with the production budget and uh, 
it really showed in the long run. And, and at this point, I think Rick realized the episode could be used during the the sweeps period. Sure. So that it would be a, a featured episode. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. The, I think that we got the story mostly right then when we talked about it before on the show. But uh, if you want to know more about the story of the making of Yesterday's Enterprise, you can check out Eric's book, The Making of Yesterday's Enterprise, which I believe is available on Amazon, right? Yes. And, and, or Lulu. Oh, Lulu. Okay, sure. And we'll <laughs> include a link to that in the show notes. Um, I have to hear what you think about the news that Mark Smith, the writer of The Revenant, has been tapped to write Paramount's R-rated Trek feature that Quentin Tarantino is rumored to direct and may possibly be a big screen adaptation of Yesterday's Enterprise. Well, <laughs> ironically, I mean, it's all, it's, all, it's all very flattering that Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of Yesterday's Enterprise. I guess our episode was kind of violent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Especially towards the end when we wanted to do more than we could afford to do, like blow up Wesley Crusher, <laughs> electrocute <laughs> data. Like we had all these like great moments for everybody to basically get killed off at the end of the episode. And I just tried to imagine in my mind how Quentin Tarantino would do that with blood splatter across the view screen. <laughs> yep, definitely. Yep, right. <laughs> I, I just don't. I honestly just don't believe that it would be a, uh, a derivative of yesterday's Enterprise. But if it was, I'd be happy to take a little residual check. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wouldn't say no to that. Uh, I love uh, that episode. Um, my one complaint, uh, and this isn't anything that's wrong with it, the episode itself, is that people do really like it. And I think people look to it as like prime Trek. But the episode is designed as, you know, a departure. Like, Picard hates this world that he lives in. You know, everybody wants to get back right. to this world where we can just go explore again. And people always look at the episode like, oh, yeah, they're, they're shooting things and Wesley Crutcher's head's getting ripped off. And it's like, but that's not really what Star Trek's supposed to be. I know that Alex Kurtzman said they, they were really heavily inspired by the episode when they set out to make um, the 2009 reboot. And it's like, yeah, I saw that too. <laughs> but you guys, you're supposed, remember, you're supposed to like seek out new worlds, you know, not have Shooter McGavin, you know, ripping people's heads off or whatever. <laughs> well, see, it's funny because I know that people look at it that way, but I always look at it from the scene where, where Guinan is telling Picard, it's not supposed to be this way. Yeah, sure. You know, billions of people have died. And and to me, that was the core of the story of what it was all about. You know, it's like we have to set things right again because that it was just a a bad universe for people to be in, you know. (laughs) But we figured while we were there, we'd have fun with it. And (laughs) Yeah, it'll have a great soundtrack, though, when it's a movie. (laughs) But, yeah. And, And a lot of times, you know, when people hear, oh, you wrote this episode that's like one of the fan favorites, and they, they've they never watched Next Generation, and I'm like, well, you can't just watch this episode right. without knowing yeah. like what the show is about and who Tasha right. Yar was. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Because, right. like you said, it's a completely, you know, it's, it's outside the normal realm of what Next Generation was. Yeah. I have a unique situation on today's episode because we've never before discussed an episode of a, of a Star Trek uh, episode or show uh, with the guest who contributed to its creation. So we'll do things a little bit differently than we usually do. 
but I hope that we'll get a much deeper insight. Um, apart from the fact that you wrote the story for the episode, why did you choose this specific episode, Prime Factors, to talk about today? Primarily because I think it has a very interesting backstory that most people aren't aware of. Mm. And because it was an attempt by David and I, David George, who co-wrote the story with me, to sort of like flip the Star Trek philosophy on its head and see it from a different point of view yeah. in terms of the prime directive. But we, do you want me to just dive into the inspiration of it? Well, I'll tell you what, let's uh, get to that uh, in one sec. Let me okay. just do the uh, my duty here and say that we're talking about the Voyager episode Prime Factors. It's the 10th episode of the first season of Star Trek Voyager. It first aired on March 20th, 1995. Uh, the teleplay for the episode is by Michael Perricone and Greg Elliott. Elliott and Perricone also wrote the fourth season, season episode of Voyager, Unforgettable. And they were uh, executive story editors on the WB series Charmed for a brief time and wrote two episodes for that show. Uh, the story for this episode, as we know, is of course by Eric and David R. George III. Uh, we already know Eric, but David George is the author of numerous Star Trek books, including the DS9 novel The 34th Rule, which came from an idea of his and Eric's and was written with the assistance of Cork actor and former show guest Armin Shimmerman. David's most recent work is the DS9 relaunch novel The Long Mirage, and he's also a former and, on this season, a future guest of Enterprising Individuals. I spoke to both Dave and Armin, and I got the impression that The 34th Rule came partially from pitches that you guys delivered to uh, DS9. Yeah, originally, we well, we had pitched um, some stories to um, Deep Space Nine, and we had also pitched the, the same idea to, uh, I think there was a series of comic books that were being done at the time where they had, like, actors associated with the storytelling. And oh, okay, we, okay, sure. And we had tried to go that route as well and then finally we were like let's just do a book okay. <laughs> um, and, and David and Armin were more involved in the book than I was but sure. in, in the beginning when we were developing the various pitches it, it was something that I had um, thought of from hearing George Decay tell the stories of the internment camps uh, when yeah. he was a child and and a few years before that, he had given me and my wife a private tour of the Japanese American Museum in downtown Los Angeles, where they had put together an entire exhibit of the camps, including one of the cabins that they used to live in. And mm -hmm. it always just really um, stuck in my mind what a horrible historical moment that was in American yeah. history and uh, especially later when uh, George's mother had developed Alzheimer's and some of her behavior started reverting to the time when they lived in the camps and she was afraid of the wind blowing through the cracks in the cabins and getting dirt in the food oh. and so when she was in her um, later stages of Alzheimer's and she was living with, with George and Brad, she would like cover all the food with like napkins and stuff and they it took them a long time to figure out what was going on. Okay. But she was basically like reverting back to the time when George was a 
child and they were living in those camps. And these stories just like were like burned into my brain. And so we, I, I was like, what if we came up with a story that kind of deals with this kind of treatment? And that's where the concept for the 34th rule came up. Okay. Wow. Um, that's intense. Uh, this you know, this episode was directed by uh, Les Landau. It's a familiar name. He's a veteran TV director, and he's directed 58 episodes of the various post-TOS pre-discovery Star Trek shows. The start date for this episode is 48642.5. And your assignment, Eric, and this should be a snap for you, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Prime Factors. A 25-word <laughs> synopsis. Pitch me um, Prime Factors. Pitch you Prime Factors. Well... We had to pitch it twice to the producer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you should be good. <laughs> um, basically, it was an exploration of uh, what it would be like for our crew to encounter a civilization that had their own version of the Prime Directive that would stop us from having access to a technology that could help them get home to the to the Alpha Quadrant. Okay, I think that's that's pretty clean. That's pretty good. Uh, here's your one-sentence summary of Prime Factors, your script from a 1996 Wired magazine interview. Members of the crew, crew mutiny in order to obtain a technology that can send them home. Yeah. Do you remember saying that, that to Wired? That good, too. Yeah, I remember, <laughs> I remember that interview. <laughs> uh, here's I think some Lolita was interviewed. Lolita Fajo was interviewed. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, here's a couple of facts from the memory banks about the episode. And again, Eric, you're in the position to comment on the veracity of these facts, so don't hold back. Uh, I believe the original story for this episode involved Voyager encountering the Assigners, the race for which Gary Seven was working for in the original series episode Assignment Earth. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Now, I have to assume that that was something of a geeky continuity callback to the original series, right? Absolutely. So... Almost all of a lot of the ideas that I would develop with writing partners, including Trent and and David, were because we were all fans of the original series, sure. and we we always thought it would be great to, to to tie like some historical stuff into the new shows, and so I just remember you know rewatching Assignment Earth one day and getting transfixed on a line where the Enterprise intercepts a transporter um, beam with Gary Seven and Scotty or somebody says it, it originated from like halfway across the galaxy, like beyond our own technology. Right. And so I, I said to David, well, what if the Voyager crew encountered the civilization in the Delta Quadrant that had that technology to beam people halfway across the galaxy. Right. And this could be an opportunity for them to get home. Um, and, and so we we worked on this idea for a while and came up with this notion that in addition to Gary Seven and all these other agents that had basically been kidnapped from different worlds so that they could go back later in time. Because I, I pulled the... the the information on Gary Seven, he was supposed to be a male whose ancestors were abducted from Earth around 4,000 B.C. Right. And and he was an agent who had been sent to Earth to replace two other agents who had been killed in a car accident. Yeah. And I started thinking, well, what if the civilization that had abducted these humans to, to use their 
generations to go back and like save Earth civilization from itself. We're doing the same thing on other worlds with with people from all these other worlds, but at some point in time, they had failed and had caused a cataclysmic disaster that had wiped out an entire civilization and had felt so oppressed by this concept that they decided they would stop interfering in other cultures. Once burned, twice shy. Yeah. So by the time the Voyager crew encountered them, they've decided, oh, no, we don't don't do that anymore. We don't get involved (laughs) and we don't interfere in other people's cultural situations or technological things. And so, of course, when we were pitching this idea to Michael and Jerry Taylor, Michael was... Of course, we don't use gimmicks from we don't need gimmicks from the original Star Trek. And I'm like, I knew that was coming, but I figured you might as well just throw it out there and see what happens. But in the process, Michael said he liked the basic premise, although he didn't want it to be like directly associated with something from the original series. Right. So he said it reminded him of an old. Humphrey Bogart movie directed by um, John Houston called The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Sure. And so David and I are sitting there looking at each other like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And so Michael says, so Michael had this notion that the, the Treasure of Sierra Madre was actually something that it isn't actually. Because okay. he was saying, oh, it's like these guys go out looking for gold, and, and then they think they find it, but it turns out to be fool's gold, and right. blah, blah, blah. So he goes, he's like, go watch the movie, and then come back and like repitch the story. So we went and watched Treasure of Sierra Madre, but we realized at the end of the story, they had real gold. Well, but, yeah. But the, the other people who, the bandits who like, stole it from them thought it was, sandbags or something so they just let it like blow off in the wind because it was like right. gold dust and it, and so it turned out they they actually gave up actual gold for nothing so we're like how do we make this into our story <laughs> <laughs> so so we decided to go with michael's notion that it was full of gold instead of actual gold by um doing a story where they have this technology, and if, if we can get it from them, even through nefarious, you know, tricks, that in the end it won't work because, for whatever reason, it doesn't interface with our technology. So that's where the, the notion came from. And then we had to come back in and pitch this idea again to Jerry Taylor, who was convinced that's not what Michael's intent was. And we're like, no, it was. That's what he told us. <laughs> so then she had to go back and talk to Michael and and it went around and around and finally they're like, Okay, go write the story So we got hired to write the story. Sure. And but that's where it all started. But okay. yes, it was very much about Gary Seven to me. Yeah. The, that the would be uh, that, It's an ambitious uh idea. Uh it probably would have blown blown the uh, budget, uh, for sure. But it uh, that's an episode I'd like to see. Well, it's mostly, you know, um, the references are just sort of backstory, you know. Like, I think Star Trek fans love it when you just throw them 
an Easter egg here and there, right? Oh, sure, yeah. Like, like the producers of the new movies at least understand that. But back in those days, you know, Michael and everybody were so concerned about next all these shows standing on their own merit without yeah. using the original Star Trek as a crutch. But I thought by the time Voyager rolled around, maybe we could, like throw it out there again because we were on to the like fourth series by then so it's like right yeah, why can't yeah. we refer to the original star trek it's crazy, crazy. <laughs> right and you know uh authors like greg cox have used uh gary seven in a couple different books so i think people would have got it yeah i mean it wasn't like something that you had to be a star trek fan to understand if you could like spend two seconds you know compiling a backstory for for what the civilization was and that, that right. they had, had contact with earth and that they had the technology that could send us there but sure. then we find out we can't use it because they have a law against it yeah right so that was the basic, so that was the basic premise but one of my favorite elements of the story was how tuvok was involved in basically going behind Janeway's back, and at the end, that scene where she lectures him about trust and loyalty and all that, I thought yeah. was a really profound moment in the establishment of the series. And one of the hard things about this writing stories for a new show was when we were pitching the ideas, they didn't even have the cast cast yet. Okay. So you're you know what the basic premise is and you've got the basic character um, descriptions that you don't really know who these people are because you yeah, right. There's no Tim seen Russ them, or... you haven't heard yeah. them. So it's, it, it is difficult pitching stories. I remember being so nervous in the pitch, the second pitch with Jerry Taylor. I I had a pen in my hand and I kept clicking it on and off. <laughs> click, 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 click. <laughs> Click, click, click. And we were telling her the, the new pitch, click, click, click. And finally, we we finished the pitch, and we're looking at her, and she says, okay, first, stop clicking the pen. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, those are the things that stand out in my memory. Uh, the Sakarians, the uh, would-be antagonists of this episode, were originally planned by the writing staff to become one of three antagonistic alien races in the first season, along with the Kazons and the Vidaeans. Uh, however, ongoing plans for them were scrapped when Michael Piller and the writing staff were disappointed with how they came off in this episode. True or false? Yeah, I think we were all disappointed in that. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I, I like them as a bad guy, or just as a, as a race. I, I think they're okay. I don't know. The, the casting was not quite what I visualized. But... Well, let's talk about that. Uh, Ronald Gutman appears as Gathoro Laban. Gutman is a Belgian actor who played Lieutenant Melikin, the chain-smoking engineer in The Hunt for Red October. He's had a long career in film and television, and he appeared recently in a season-long arc as Dunny on the AMC series Preacher. And Josh Clark appears on this episode as Lieutenant Joseph Carey. Carey was the assistant chief engineer on Voyager, introduced in the pilot. He'd go on to appear several times on the show until meeting his end in the episode Friendship One, so close to home. And Clark also appeared as an unnamed tactical officer in the Next Generation episode, just as I like to think of him as Diet Miles O'Brien. 
Okay. Similar look, similar job. That's funny. Martha Hackett appears in this episode as Ensign Seska. Hackett appeared previously on DS9 as Subcommander to Rule in the two-part episode, The Search. Uh, the character would actually leave a Voyager after this episode, uh, in, in the episode State of Flux, but would go on to appear as the character many times in the show. Um, tell me what you think about this. I think that there is a general overarching theme in Star Trek of colonialism or maybe interventionism. The idea that we're great, we've got great things, let's get out there and see what's up. You know, the galaxy is our oyster, which I think is in line with Trek's inspirations uh, from 50s and 60s sci-fi. But of course, it's tempered by this idea that we can't do any harm. It's like the Hippocratic Oath. You've got skills and abilities that others don't. So don't adversely affect other races who don't have those advantages. And that's been a mainstay of the entire franchise uh, from the first time that the Prime Directive is mentioned in Return of the Archons to even now in Star Trek Discovery. But as you mentioned, in this episode, the tables are turned in that Voyager encounters a race that considers their own technology to be harmful and they want to protect other species, protect us from its misuse. Can you talk about how you really wanted to explore that idea uh, in putting the episode together? So David and I didn't get to write the screenplay, so we didn't really get to explore like specific ways. But I know in the story that they have um, the characters going off to some other planet yeah. for some romantic interlude or whatever. Right, yeah. <laughs> so right, basically, yeah. you know, showing the the potential of this technology. I I think it was just. Um, we just wanted to say, what would it be like if we were on the other end of this this kind of notion that we can't interfere in in your development? Yeah. Because I have to tell you, one of the things I did not like about Next Generation was when the Prime Directive started to be applied to natural disasters. Okay. <laughs> like, oh, there's this planet that's about to be destroyed by a natural phenomenon but we can't interfere right like what like what yeah <laughs> that I, I don't think that was what the original notion of the prime directive that's was. way different than giving cavemen guns or something like that yeah it's like if we have the technology to save an entire planet from destruction isn't I mean, it's almost like some weird notion, like we have to let them die because we can't interfere. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense at all <laughs> to me, yeah. like from a humanitarian point of view. It's like, if at least if you could save the planet, like it was like in the, you know, uh, crap, my brain is like freezing, but the, the original series episode um, for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. Sure. It's like... They tried to prevent, you know, the collision or whatever without revealing to the native people living on the asteroid that they were really on a spaceship right. in the beginning. But then ultimately, you know, well, Kirk was violating the prime directive oh, yeah, every episode. Sure, right, well, but yeah. <laughs> for the moral good, right? right. <laughs> so it, it was always... That was always a, a fascinating concept to me. Um, but then in the next generation, like that pen pal episode of where Data is in communication with the little girl on the planet yeah. that's about to be destroyed, right. but they can't do anything about it. I'm like, what? How can? I mean, how can Picard even live with himself 
like with that concept of the Prime Directive. So I don't I don't know if that played into this story, but it was definitely I think it probably it probably informed the idea of how would we feel if if another civilization could save us but refuse to do it. Yeah, I think that you right. Know? I think we'd want to be saved. I think we'd vote for yes, save us please. Even if you're going to reveal something to us that we don't Right, know. we'll deal with Hitler you later know? or whatever happens. But yeah, go ahead and, go ahead and save us. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that, I think, is sort of where it was coming from. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating thing to, to base an episode around. And I always like... Uh, Trek when it's at its kind of um, navel gaziest, <laughs> like I like when we see these exceptional people uh, not have to deal with, you know, where am I going to get the rent or get something to eat or whatever, but they're dealing with like, what do we do with all this thing that we have and can we use these powers? And like you said, maybe it's an academic argument, but I love seeing these characters struggle with it. Um, and I like when we get a good like bummer, uh, bummer ending. Uh, like we do in this episode, um, like it ends on a real bad note. Uh, you know, the crew's relationship with the Zakarians is unsalvageable. Taurus is in trouble. Uh, engineering's on fire. And Janeway's faith in Tuvok is shaken. Yeah. But I think that was a, a profound ending, which started to establish some really good, like, relationships between the characters. Yeah. Um, the the relationship between Janeway and Tuvok has always been one of my favorite Trek pairings. They have this real um, kind of work wife, work husband thing going on. And I like how their, their yeah. partnership is – to me, it's like reminiscent of the long tradition that you'll see in um, like older stories about like a captain or a commander and their aide-de-camp or their like advisor. Um, you, you get that a little right. with Kirk and Spock, although they're often – uh, portrayed as essentially equals and i don't know picard always seems to hold Riker at arm's length but i like that idea of the beleaguered captain and oh we're really up against it uh, i can't let anybody see that i'm cracking but you my second you're always there you know what what should i do be my compass in this situation i, I love that dynamic it's funny because when you say that I, i've been watching um victoria the series oh, yeah. about queen, queen victoria yeah. And that was kind of like her relationship with her first prime minister, okay. and 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 almost to the point where she was in love with him because he was always there for her and guiding her when she was the young queen. And so it's an interesting it's an interesting story, especially when he had to sort of break it off and say, "Hey, you're on your own now." <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> So, yeah, it is an interesting dynamic yeah. for characters. And that dynamic is, is crushed, at least temporarily, uh, by the end of this episode. I was surprised to find out that Tim Russ, uh, the actor behind Tuvok, was reportedly dissatisfied with the portrayal of Tuvok in this episode. And uh, some of his uh, input led to specific changes in the script. What, was Tuvok's betrayal like that depicted in the same way in your original script? Well, again, um, it was it was Greg and and uh, Michael right. who wrote the, the script, so the story was a lot less defined. Yeah, sure. In terms of of the specific moments of activity going yeah. on, um, and and one of the things I wanted to talk about before I forget sure. is when because um, Greg and Michael. Um, wrote the script when the, when the final draft was issued for 
credit purposes. They had also been given shared story credit. Okay. With me and David and 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 I have nothing against Greg or Michael. I don't even know who made that determination. Sure. <laughs> David and I actually filed a, a complaint with the Writers Guild because we felt that the story was definitely our story. They didn't like alter the the basic concept of the story yeah. in the script writing process. So it did go to a Writers Guild arbitration, and we David and I won the right to have sole story credit okay. on the episode. What's the determination? Like, is it a, a certain, like if you pitch something and they buy it and then somebody else develops it, is it like 50 per 1%, you know, has to be yours still? Or is it like that, that like 25 word pitch? Like this is what it's about, but if they add side things. I mean, I think it's a little bit arbitrary, but we did have to <laughs> submit all the drafts of the stories and stuff. I mean, I'm sure the guild has some kind of guidelines. I don't remember all these things. It's so strange to me. These things are like 30 years ago. Well, yeah. <laughs> these like yesterday's enterprise. It's like I can't even believe it's been that long. <laughs> but um, I don't remember all the specifics or what the guild's guidelines were. But all I knew was that they were very loyal to the story that we had pitched and had written. Sure without deviating drastically from it. So we were kind of shocked to find out that they were being given half the story credit. Uh, I think that, like, Tim Russ's problem was that he felt that, like, logic alone wouldn't lead Tuvok to do what he did. And I think I read that he had sort of imagined, like, an additional motivation. Like, the idea that, in addition to... Tuvok just wanting to do this uh, to take it on himself. He was also kind of preempting a mutiny because here you go, you've got this group of like mostly McKee, uh, former McKee members who are putting this whole plan together. And so not only was he sort of taking the blame, but he was also, you know, at the beginning of the episode, it emphasizes the fact that, oh, the crew seems to be coming together. And he's like, I don't want these guys to think that they can get away with this kind of stuff. So I'm going to take this on myself to kind of halt that before that becomes something even worse. Yeah, I, I, you know, I know there, there were a lot of, I don't know about Tim's issues so much. I know actors always have their own <laughs> internalized issues. I mean, even Patrick Stewart came to me when we were doing Yesterday's Enterprise. I was down on the set and he <laughs> wanted to know if, if he was the same person in, in the alternate okay, universe sure. as he was. Yeah. And I had to sort of explain the whole yeah, 22 years ago, you were exactly the same person, but then this incident occurred, right. and from that point on, you took a different path that led you to where you are in this battleship, right. a war with Klingons, and so he completely, he completely got it. And then Jonathan Frakes asked me the same question, and I <laughs> went through the whole thing with him, and then at the end, he's like, I still don't get it. <laughs> And he still says that to me every single time I see him, even 30 years later. Like, I still don't get that episode. Uh, yeah, well, I'm trying to think, like, uh, there was no Troy in the uh, in the Yesterday's Enterprise universe, right? Oh, yes, and, and, she, and she reminds me of that every time. Oh, I well, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be like... I said, you were, sitting on, you were sitting on the bridge at the very beginning, so you still get your reason. Yeah, no, yeah, sure. But like, here, okay, John, uh, you still play the trombone, but there's no Imzadi. How about that? <laughs> but yeah, with with prime factors, there were a lot of things that I thought 
were kind of weak, not least the casting of the Sicarian guy. <laughs> it just didn't. It just didn't. I I wanted him to be more believable as, as and authentic, but he just seemed like he was being skeezy <laughs> well you know like hitting on Bainway. <laughs> yeah he was really handsy yeah well that's kind of what i like about him um now maybe he doesn't make like a good antagonist for an hour of star trek tv but that that's something i wanted to ask you about like the idea of the sicarians is like this you know pleasure loving race like was that michael's idea or was that something that you guys had come up with originally well, I think it was Michael's idea that they were going to trade stories yeah, right. for technology, and and I thought, how are we going to sell that? Like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't know. I I was really having trouble believing that the that these people would do that. Right. That they were so fascinated with stories that they it's would books. like basically violate their own laws and gotta find gotta get that last harry potter book yeah so i think though for me like the reason that they work kind of i guess they don't work perfectly uh is that they kind of i think they're a good foil for the federation because they've achieved a level of sophistication that's similar to that of the federation but instead of committing themselves uh to service uh and making themselves better like the federation citizens do uh, they've plunged themselves into Epicureanism. And so, you know, you've got them, you've got the Federation. The Federation could easily do the same thing. They've cured hunger and want. They could choose to eat lotus all day long like these guys do. But instead, right. they're flying around and they're fixing anomalies and they're getting shot out by the Borg. And uh, so that's I, I thought that it was a good sort of opposite view. The only problem is, how do you why would they? make antagonists of what oh we hate you guys because you gave us all our books like how do they become bad guys they don't yeah i don't know i for me of course i was still coming from the original concept that that at one point in time they had been more like the federation uh-huh. sure but in their but it but because i was still thinking of them sending gary seven off to save the earth from nuclear destruction right and and that in some other world they had failed and it had all ended terribly and so they it was so dis, they were so distraught from that that they just decided they were never going to interfere again. Yeah. So in my mind, that's where it was always coming from. But no one else. Well, that. well <laughs> now that I know that, that's kind of my headcanon. I think going forward for this episode is that they are they are the assigners. Uh, just, but they gave up hundreds of years ago on uh, fixing things after they screwed up, and now they just wear thirty-pound test fishing line in their hair and like offer people <laughs> yeah. offer people dried apricots and stuff. I and I I do like that actor and speak with yeah. French accent. Yeah, right. I do, I do like that actor and a list. Yeah, and a list. He's like, oh, what a curious people. <laughs> I just and I just couldn't see that Janeway could be attracted. Well, to she's him for some reason. She's playing him though. I, I like the fact that she's sophisticated enough to know. All right, I'll let this guy think that something's going to happen in order to get what I want, which is something you see Kirk do all the time on the original series. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my mother saw the episode and thought that I had written in the pecan pie. Oh, yeah. Based on <laughs> okay. I was going to ask about that. And I sadly had to tell her that the 
Pies was not in the story oh. that I wrote. It was something that the screenwriter okay. <laughs> written. So I had nothing to do with the pecan pie. <laughs> what do you think about the fact that? And I know that a TV show has a um, you know a budget every week, and so there you're limited what you can do. But were you disappointed by the fact that it seems like so many of the aliens, uh, even out to the Delta Quadrant, are just humanoids with bumpy heads? I am um, sort of of two minds when it comes to these things because ultimately Gene's original idea for Star Trek Gene Rodbury was that these are morality tales about humanity and about the human condition. If they were stories that he could have told in the 1960s without them being aliens to begin with, they probably wouldn't have been Star Trek. It was just then stories about humans but he he couldn't do that so he created this science fiction reality where he could get away with it right that's what he always says that's what he says and i i know that there are uh, limitations in the practicality of producing television shows especially back then compared to now um so it doesn't bother me that much but i did used to have um, I was a purist when it came to like characters not being recast it used to drive me oh. crazy that <laughs> they recast Savick yeah, you yeah. know and then I was like how am I ever gonna live through one of these new Star Trek movies where Kirk and Spock <laughs> yeah, are played right. by completely different people and I got over it over I mean over the years you know, you just have to go with it, right? Right. I mean, James Bond was how many different people played James Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but within within the the world of the original series, when they started doing the movies, I just thought, try to, if they could just be consistent. Because I know when originally, before Star Trek, the motion picture became a feature film, they were going to do the new Star Trek series, Star Trek Two. Right. And Nimoy wasn't going to be in it, so they created a new Vulcan character yes. who was on. And he and I feel like the, that cast of that show was really next generation because they were going to have Decker as the first officer, and Zahn was a full-blooded Vulcan who was going to be more like Data, yeah. who who wanted to explore what it would be like to be human and and they they had Ilea who was kind of like the Troy character right. who who had all the the weird you know empathy or whatever and so to me like the characters from Star Trek the Motion Picture who were also going to be part of a TV series became the next generation characters when Gene you know came back to do that show but my point being was, if Nimoy wasn't going to be in it, they weren't going to recast him with another actor. Well, yeah, right, right. You know, and so to me that was like some that was part of what was uh, a certain kind of purity about Star Trek that started to fall apart when they started doing the, the feature films. And yeah, Gene wasn't 
involved. Yeah, it's a different uh, it's a different world. But I mean, you know, just like with um, Phase Two turning into uh, you know the next generation or even the motion picture, you always got to hold on to those ideas. You know, you have something you don't use, yeah, put it in your pocket and you can use it again. Yep. Yeah. Well, as we come to the end of our episode here, did you have any final thoughts about Prime Factors? Anything that you felt or thought uh, looking back on it? I, I think it was interesting to have been involved in it, like one of the first season episodes just because it was laying the groundwork for this new series yeah. before we even knew who these people were. So in the end, I was I was happy with how the episode turned out, and it was nominated by the sci-fi um, Sci-Fi Universe, I think it was right. called. It was a magazine that used to like do an annual awards show, and it was and the episode Prime Factors was nominated for like best best episode of a sci-fi show. So, so you know, it did get some recognition back in the early days. Yeah, it's a really strong episode, and I think that, like you said, I think it uh, even early on in the show, it really sets up a lot of the things that we'll be uh, returning to as the show goes on. If you got a chance to write another script that referenced the original series or something nerdy like that, uh, what would you, what would you do? Well, it's funny because um, there were bunches of different stories that um, we had pitched over the years that either they did without like involving us or they just never did them at all. Uh. And one that that I remember, which I think would be funny now because I work at Disney, <laughs> is that I had pitched this idea to Michael Pillar of that was that was sort of inspired by Shore Leave from the original okay, series, yeah. where 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 Jordy is kidnapped by an alien race that runs this like basically like a pleasure planet, but it's like the whole planet is like. Disneyland, except it's all automated, and all the, it's like Westworld, like all the characters are like automatrons and stuff, but something malfunctions and they can't fix it, (laughs) so they go and kidnap Jordy to take him to this planet to like fix it, I I never had a, a final resolution to the whole concept, but Michael was kind of intrigued by that idea. Yeah, I like that. We had also... um, I had also had this other idea that that was sort of inspired by the scene in Star Wars where where R two D two and C three PO get picked up by on the Tatooine and they're put in that junk ship that junk yard yeah. thing. And uh or I had this idea um before they did the most was it called the most toys? Yeah. Anyway, where there was this collector who had gone around the galaxy collecting androids. And and he wanted data for his collection because it always used to drive me crazy on Next Generation that they acted like data was the only android in the universe. Right. Like like we hadn't seen like thousands of them in the original series. Yeah, yeah, right. Even just on Mud's planet alone, yeah. right? <laughs> and so I I had this scene where Data like gets kidnapped and and he's in this room full of like all the androids from the original Star Trek series like Stella <laughs> okay and like this guy had collected like all these androids from all around the galaxy but a whole bunch of them were ones that we had seen in the original series a lot of them were just premises they're not really full-blown story well concepts, sure that's but, a starting point but they're all based on 
gimmicks from the original. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, so no go there. <laughs> uh, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Well, that's really tough because um, I grew up on the original Star Trek, and I love the original Star Trek, and Kirk is like the greatest captain in the universe. Sure. Um, but I worked on Next Generation and actually knew these people, and and I thought Patrick Stewart was amazing. Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's between those two. And if one or the other had to be the winner... I would pick Pat. I would pick Picard. Okay, fair enough. I thought you'd say Captain uh, Richard Garrett of the uh, SS Deep Dish. Well, she, she. I thought you meant the key <laughs> captains. No, uh, Rachel Garrett. Was, she was uh, Trisha O'Neill was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I. She really was. She was a huge Star Trek fan too. Oh, really? That's awesome. <laughs> I. I always. She said she tried to base her part, her performance on William Shatner. Oh, okay, neat. Oh, okay, I could see that. Yeah, I always like uh, seeing other captains of the Enterprise, like Garrett or uh, John Harriman. You know, the idea that they're uh, they have as many adventures, I'm sure, as Kirk or Picard. You know, we just haven't seen them yet. Right, right, exactly. Well, uh, every guest on the show receives a commission and the rank of ensign in our Starfleet. What department on the ship <laughs> would you work in? Um, the science department. Science, interesting. Why? I think that the most fascinating thing about Star Trek is the inspiration it gives to entire generations of people about science and space. And I was just telling someone the other day that my biggest disappointment with what has happened to Tomorrowland at Disneyland Uh is that it used to be the inspiration for the future. Uh And now it's all Star Wars. <laughs> okay. Which, which isn't a bad thing because I love Star Wars too, but <laughs> Star Wars isn't about the human adventure or the future of humanity. It's about stuff that happened in the galaxy a long, long time right. ago, right? right? And so Tomorrowland isn't even like Tomorrowland. It's in the galaxy far, far away a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the one thing that Star Trek still does hopefully it still does since I haven't watched the new show, but is it inspires new young viewers towards an interest in the sciences yeah. and space and exploration. Yeah. Cause I think that's where humanity needs to sure. go. Although careful, you know, the mouse is always listening. You're real boss. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they're giving us all a thousand dollar. Yeah. I heard about that. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's interesting is um, to go back to where we all started at the beginning of this talk was I, my dad was in the Air Force. I was inspired. I wanted to work for NASA. That's what I wanted to do. And I even had a nomination from President Carter (laughs) to, to compete for an appointment to the Air Force Academy, which thousands of people compete every year and only a small class are appointed to the academy but my failings were one i wasn't athletic (laughs) and two um as as i progressed through my education math and and um science particularly math became more and more difficult for me Uh 
but I but I excelled in writing and social studies and history and that kind of thing. Sure. And so eventually, I ended up majoring in political science. And I feel like a lot of my uh, political philosophy was inspired by the original Star Trek. Okay. But I used to tell people, if I can't work in space for NASA, I'm just going to go to Hollywood and work in in fictional space. Right. (laughs) That's what I did. So that's what I did. If I can't go on the real mission to Mars, I'll just ride mission to Mars. Exactly. I'll get on a starship and fly halfway across the galaxy. Right. When when I lived in Idaho with my where my friend introduced me to Star Trek, we used to play Star Trek in the neighborhood because the the air base was out in the middle of nowhere and on the outskirts of the neighborhood was basically desert with those giant like mounds of red ants and stuff all over the place. <laughs> sure. But all the kids in the neighborhood we would get our our model spaceships or the ones that we made from scrap and we would have the Federation on one side of the street and the Klingons and the Romulans on the other side of the street and the street was like the neutral zone and if you crossed over it it's like an act of war (laughs) and we used to play Star Trek for like hours and hours and we'd go out in the desert and all the giant ant hills were like star bases with crazy aliens and (laughs) we would build these giant like ant farms and like gallon jars and, and pretend they were space stations and stuff. Sure. I mean, and then at night, it was so clear out in the desert. We would lay out at night, like, watching the stars for hours and hours, dreaming about what it would be like to be on Star Trek. So I felt like when I finally ended up in Hollywood and there'd be times when, like, the sets would be shut down because they weren't working on a specific stage and I could just like walk through them. There, There's parts of the sets where, like in the corridors, where you can be at a point where you cannot see any reality in any direction. You can only see that you're on a star <laughs> And I just used to, I, I still just love that feeling that, that you can like make your dreams come true. Yeah. If you wish upon a star. <laughs> Anson Stowell, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at, at EIST Pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Me, Facebook. <laughs> and you're at Eric Stillwell or Eric A. Stillwell? I don't know if I used the middle initial or not. Well, either way, that's a, a, you use that uh, for writing, right? For the guild? Yeah. yeah. Is there another Eric Stillwell? Oddly, there's apparently some preacher. Oh, okay. There. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> but I think I'm predominantly the Eric Stowell that comes up in Google search. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks again for joining me. Well, it was a pleasure doing the show. Thank you. And we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies close. It's on your mind.